If you have a Bible, turn to our Old Testament reading, Proverbs chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, it's almost dead center. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Now this particular proverb, it originated somewhere between 2,600 and 3,000 years ago. That's a long time. And in a very different culture. So we need to be careful when we read stuff like this in very old books from very different places, very far away, and it has words that we're accustomed to. A real danger is to bootleg into it cultural presuppositions. For example, if you were to read one of Shakespeare's plays and you find the word hussy, when Shakespeare wrote the word hussy meant housewife, you would be amiss if you were to bootleg your culture's understanding of that word, or vice versa, if you were to go around greeting homemakers with such language today, this wouldn't go over well. So we need to be careful here. You see that word right at the beginning, righteous? This is an important word in the proverb. When a certain type of people prosper, the city rejoices. It's not only important in this proverb, but it's important in this book, the book of Proverbs. It's one of those words, and this is something about the book of Proverbs that you don't have to be um, highly trained to study the book of Proverbs. One of the great ways to study Proverbs is to find key words in it and then read the whole thing and list out where that word comes up. It's called a word study. And this is one of the key words in the book of Proverbs. And if you were to do that, if you were to read through the book multiple times, over and over, take a couple of months to do it, read a chapter a day, and if you were to list out all the times this word righteous came up, you could understand what the word righteous meant in this setting. And if you were to do that, what you would see is that the righteous in the book of Proverbs are the just. The people who follow God's heart and God's ways, and they see everything they have as gifts from God. Now, I, pr I think that probably if I were to ask you before I just said that, what does it mean to be righteous? I bet very few people would say it means to see everything you have as a gift from God. Like that's not our intuitive way of defining the word. But in the book of Proverbs, this is what comes up over and over. A righteous person is not some holier than thou. They have a particular kind of characteristic about them. And at the heart of it is recognizing everything they have is a gift from God, and therefore they are stewards of those gifts for God's purposes. And one of the key things that comes up with this posture in the book of Proverbs is that the righteous, get this, are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community. This is fundamental to righteousness in Proverbs. The willingness to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the community. Now this is contrasted in the book of Proverbs with another group. A group called the wicked. And in the book of Proverbs, wicked people are very specific. 
They are people who put their own economic and social and personal needs ahead of the community. This is a very different way of defining righteousness and wickedness than a lot than we're kind of programmed to define it by in our culture today. So now we can begin to imagine why a city would rejoice when this type of person flourishes. When the righteous are prospering in their jobs and in their health and in their finances, when they have power, when these type of righteous people, when they have power and they have wealth and they have standing, in other words, when they are at the top, those at the bottom celebrate. Now, when you put it that way, it suddenly you realize this is a real, there's something really fascinating going on in this proverb. Because I can easily think of scenarios where whichever group is at top and has power and has wealth, those who aren't at the top certainly aren't rejoicing over the gap. I mean, given human nature, a scenario where there's a gap is typically, it typically results in resentment and anger and jealousy. The rich just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting poorer. But in this proverb, there's a group of people that when they flourish, when they prosper, it is a cause for the whole city, top to bottom, to rejoice. And you see, it's because of what the righteous are. It's because of how the righteous view their power and their prosperity and how they use it, how they see it as a gift from God to be stewarded for God's purposes, to be disadvantaged for the advantage of the community. So because they view their prosperity not as a means of self-enrichment, but as a vehicle for blessing others, when that type of person flourishes, everyone benefits from their success. When that type of person becomes the head of the department, Everybody in the department celebrates. When that type of person gets promoted, the people that work for them celebrate. As the righteous prosper, they steward everything. Their money, their vocational position and expertise, their assets and their resources, their opportunities and education, their relationships and social position, their networks. All of it. They steward it all for the common good. And when the people at the top act like this, the whole community cheers. Because when the righteous prosper, it makes life better for everybody. Concretely better. Actually better. Now, now look at that word rejoice. This is another word that we need to let the Bible define on its own terms. Uh, there are, th- this part of the Bible was originally written in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, there were multiple words for rejoice, multiple synonyms that we translate into the English language as rejoice. This one is the rarest one in the Bible, the rarest of the synonyms for rejoice in the Bible. And it's got a a unique connotation to it. It's got the connotation of military enterprise, of, 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 of a military kind of note to it. It describes the ecstatic joy, the exultation and triumph that people express when they've been delivered 
from the hand of an oppressor. In other words, this word is used for the V-Day parade in New York, not for singing happy birthday when your child turns 16. Right? This is the word that uniquely describes that full-throated, body-shaking, communal ex- explosion of joy when the concentration camps were delivered, when the bombing stopped in London. It's that kind of joy that's brought up here. Now, there is a kind of person that when they prosper, that's what a city does. There's a kind of person that when they prosper, they make a remarkably positive difference in the city. This is the person who is stewarding their wealth and their power and their skills and their influence for the common good to bring about noticeable, significant transformation in the actual lives of the people in the city. Otherwise, what would be prompting these residents, these people, to go crazy with gladness and gratitude? I mean, clearly the righteous are doing more than taking their old clothes to the Salvation Army. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a really good way to steward your old clothes. But do you think that produces parades? No. That, there is more going on here than gifts to gift and thrift. As good as that stuff is... This dancing in the street kind of joy occurs when the righteous grow influential and they advance justice with their prosperity, with their power, with their influence, with their work. They advance justice and joy and shalom in the city in such a way that the people at the bottom stop being oppressed. That's why rejoice as a military term of victory is so important because it opens up this whole thing in the Bible about the poor's vulnerability in a city and when the righteous have prosperity, there's a kind of delivering that's that's a kind of setting free from the yokes of systemic injustice. When the poor, the people at the bottom of the barrel start getting genuine opportunities and they begin to enjoy spiritual and physical health, they begin to experience economic sufficiency and security in their neighborhoods. In other words, what Proverbs chapter 11 verse 10 teaches us is that by the intentional stewardship of time and talent and treasures The righteous bring nothing less than foretastes of the kingdom of God to their city. Victory parades occur where King Jesus is doing his great good work of restoration, of deliverance, of healing. They occur at the intersections where Jesus pushes back the kingdom of darkness and pushes in the kingdom of light. His life, Jesus' life, was a life offering foretaste of the coming kingdom of God with all of its shalom. 
His death conquered all sin and evil that could oppose this kingdom's full realization. He came to begin the work of making all things new. And he saves us from our sins, not so that we'll get whisked off into some kind of nebulous, otherworldly, non-material, out-of-this-cosmos heaven. That's not why he saves us. He saves us so that we will join him in his work. And when people who are so deeply shaped by that prosper in a city, can you see what would happen to that city? Can you see why that city would rejoice? To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And as we follow Christ together, he calls us to seek the welfare of the city, the flourishing, the prosperity, the shalom, the wholeness of the city. And so, alongside God's clear concern about the eternal destiny of individuals are his designs for the larger creation, for culture, for cities. As a church, we've got to have a robust and comprehensive view of what it is we're in this city for and what it is we're supposed to be aiming at with regard to this city. The Lord Jesus Christ calls his followers to be agents both of personal renewal and city parties, cultural renewal. So as I read and meditate on Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. I ask myself, are we? Is that what we're doing as a church? Are we engaged in efforts that are relevant to the groans of creation and the cries of the poor? Are we nurturing the kind of people in our church who are contributing to the profound transformation of our city, the kind of work that sets people to dancing in the streets? Have we joined King Jesus on his grand sweeping mission of restoration? Are we cooperating with him, bringing foretastes of justice and shalom and equality? Or or are we engaged in mere charity? And I think when I reflect on these questions, that this church is remarkable. So many of you inspire me by the way you're steering your work toward this kind, of, this kind of thing. I mean, I could go name after name after name of people in this room that if your job doesn't bring you right up next to the poor, you join parachurch organizations that bring you next to them. And, and you steward your gifts. It, it, is, ama- this, it is amazing to me. The ways, the many myriad of ways that you guys are tapping in to God's kingdom agenda for a city. Now, what I want to do is I want to help us think about how we can continue to do this kind of work in our city. And so for the rest of this message and then next week, I want to talk about the two primary ways, and then the week after that will be a third, and that will wrap up our series. The three primary ways 
that we, all of us, need to steward whatever gifts have come into our lives for the flourishing of our city. In other words, now and in the next two weeks, I want to talk about the three concrete ways Christians and churches move into cities and labor for the rejoicing of the city. And this morning, I'm going to spend the rest of it on the first of those, and it's through your work. Your work. Next week, through your home. And then the the final week, through your engagement in the politics of a city. These are the three primary ways that we work with God, for God, for the flourishing of a city. As workers, as neighbors, and as citizens. This week about work, your vocation, your career, your job. You have to learn how to steward it, how to look at your job. Remember how I define righteous? Everything in their life is a gift from God to be used for the good of the city. You have to start looking at your job with that lens. My job is one of the top three primary ways that I serve God's agenda, God's work in this city. In other words, if you want to grow into a righteous one, if you want to become more and more righteous, then you've got to figure out how your work connects up with God's purposes so that you can be counted as among those who rejoice the city. Uh, Look at it this way. Those of you who are really committed Christians and you're really committed to your church, let's say this church, and every week you come here to worship the Lord Jesus and a couple of weeks a year you're not here because you're on vacation or something and every week you're in a small group in our church where you're reading the scriptures together and you're praying together and you're caring for each other. If you're one of those people who does everything we ask of you to do, then how much time are you spending in the church? Uh, Let's do a little thought experiment. Between the ages of 25 and 65, 40 years of your, let's say, your working life, you will log just over 4,000 hours in the church, in the institution stuff, worship, small group. In that same time period, the average person in America will put in something like 47,000 hours on their job. So somewhere between 30 and 40% of your waking hours are work-related, while it's only 3 to 4% that are church-related. For most people, for a significant portion of our life, work is the dominant note. It's the dominant thing. It's the thing you do more than anything else. And that is okay. Because that is how you labor for the flourishing of a city. Unless your work is not for the good of the city, then you're giving the bulk of your life to not being a righteous one. But if you are going to be one of the righteous ones, then, the, then a primary way you're going to do this, the bulk of your time is work. The bulk of your money is in your house. So we're going to talk about how we use our work and how we use our homes and how we use our political life to advance this cause. Now, the, the reason that that's okay, that your work takes up so much of your life, is because 
your work is sacred. God is a worker. What's the first thing we're told God does in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God, there he is, working, doing things, making stuff. He works. And then the Bible says he made us in his image. Well, what image is that? It's a working God. So he made us to work. And, and it's primarily through our work that we manifest God's image in the world. If you have a Bible, turn to our New Testament reading. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's way to the right. It's hard to find. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jump down to verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Now look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a priest. Sean is a priest if he's a follower of Christ. Lois is a priest. Zelda's a priest. In other words, this room is filled with priests. Everyone in this room who's following God is a priest just as much as I am. Now, how do you manifest your priesthood? Well, just think about me. How do I manifest my priesthood? Well, that's easy, right? I mean, because I kind of fit the description of what we normally think of as a priest, right? I, um, I teach the Bible. I lead people to pray. I teach people how to pray. I help people listen for the work of God in their life. I lead the church. That's how I'm expressing my priesthood. But you, you're a priest too. How do you express your priesthood? Through your work. Homemakers, you are homemaking priests. You are priests on assignment to the home. Businessmen and women, you are CEO priests, marketing priests. Teachers, your priesthood is lived out primarily in your classroom. Now, what does that mean? So you've got to ask that. Lawyers, you are the priests God has sent into the justice system as lawyer priests. Students, God has sent you to be priestly students. Now, if you're going to grow up as the righteous ones who bless the city into rejoicing, then you have to see what it means to express priesthood in your particular vocation. And it should look different than the way I do it, right? I mean, think how awkward would it be for Janelle to gather the children? She's a full-time homemaker. And her to put on a really cool stole and a really cool collar and say, all right, now, children, everybody get out your money or get out your Bibles or whatever it is. You know, I'm going to teach you the Bible. I'm going to lead you to have a worship service. That, that, That would be awkward. Not nearly as awkward as if Jim Hartman gathered all of his employees together and preached a sermon to them, right? You have to find how to be a priest through your work. This is not the definition of priesthood, what I do. This is me expressing my priesthood through my particular vocation. You've, we've, all of us have got to learn 
that if we get inspired by Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, to ask, okay, how am I going to do that? And First Peter tells us I'm going to do that as a priest. And I do that as a priest through my work. So we've got to look at our jobs as a primary way we labor for the good of the city, and we do that when we figure out how to be priestly nurses, priestly students, priestly engineers. So, think of your work as your holy calling, your missionary assignment, your job assigned to you by your God. Now, once you do that, I think that the scriptures open up some really helpful ways for you to perform your job priestly. Three of them. I'll start with E, because I used to be Baptist, and I alliterate my points every now and then. So here we go. Ethics, excellence, and evangelism. First of all, to work like a priest. Ethics matter. Don't they? Do, do they matter to my job? Does it matter to you that I'm ethical in my performance of the priesthood as the pastor of this church? Yes. We need to be holy at work. It is just as much a violation of my priesthood to not be holy in my vocation as it is for you to not be holy in your vocation. We have to weave together our beliefs and our behavior. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 11. Verse 5, first, be a holy priesthood. Verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Every job done as a missionary is a job done holy, ethically. All of us, we have to resist the twin temptations at work of cynicism and stoicism. And when we fall into easy cynicism or easy stoicism, it is a lack of holiness vocationally. But then there are these particular temptations that all jobs face. Some jobs, there's a deep pressure to be dishonest, or there's a deep pressure to abuse power, or there's a deep pressure to be manipulated. You have to figure out where are the pressure points, the temptation points in your work, and that is where you've got to work to resist it to be a holy priest at your job. Number two, a second way that we express our priesthood through our work is evangelism. Evangelism. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into marvelous light. So, look, if we're reading this passage as about all of us as priests, not only are all of us called to be holy in our priesthood, we're all called to proclaim the excellencies, the good news. There is no better news than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, again, the way we do it has to be work-specific. 
I've already said, Janelle cannot proclaim the excellencies of God as a homemaker in the same manner in which I proclaim the gospel as a preacher. That, that would inoculate our children against the gospel. Sit down, children. I'm going to preach the sermon, a sermon to you, right? And, and in some of your jobs, it, it would be unethical. In some of your jobs, it would be illegal to do it that way. But that doesn't mean you don't have to do it. You've got to find your way that your job allows you to proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, when we do this, we need to be careful that we're wise and winsome and accessible and respectful and humble and loving, but at the same time, clear and brave. I mean, I mean look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There is no way to remove the awkwardness of it. You need to be wise, but wisdom will never let you off the hook of needing to be brave. There is no easy way, all right? There's just, we live in a culture that doesn't value some of the things that are they're here. Number three, to, to be a priest as a school teacher, as a doctor, as, as a homemaker, as a grandmother, it requires holiness, ethics, Evangelism. And number three, it requires excellence. You have to do your work with excellence. I mean, how would you feel about me if I just phoned it in? I had to get up at four o'clock this morning. This is my work. It's a hard job. It's a lot to do. Late last night, Drew got a phone call. Kevin is sick, so Drew last night found out he's at home by himself because Mary Elizabeth's grandmother died. Mary Elizabeth is with Owen in Dallas in, in, tech, in Louisiana, and Drew's at home with Juliana and Audrey, and he's got to get a sermon ready and go and lead the worship service at Church of the Lamb. Work is hard. We can't just phone this stuff in. We've, you can't either at your job. The first job of a worker is to the job, not to your passion. One of the most debilitating ideas running around in our culture is that satisfaction follows passion. It doesn't. It follows skill. College students, stop praying about what you're passionate about and just make good grades and get really good. And passion will catch up. Find a job that you've got some aptitudes for and then get busy preparing yourself for it. I mean, if, if you were to find out that one of your closest friends has a brain tumor, do you care how much time that doctor spends giving pro bono um, services to the free clinic? No. You just want to know if their brain surgeon is good. It doesn't matter how much pro bono work he does. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm saying excellence matters. And if you can't pursue excellence at school, don't live under the fantasy that you'll suddenly learn how to pursue excellence when you find something you're passionate about. That is a mirage. And all of us, you, you have to work hard to be good at your job. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. L listen to this. This... Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So your waiting tables? How can you work as a waitress, a waiter? How can you resist cynicism? How can you resist just mailing it in? How can you learn to work as if you're working for the Lord? Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay, Why Work? I recommend it to all of you. You can download it online. Why Work? Dorothy Sayers. She says, whatever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth, we know it wasn't crooked tables. The first job of the worker is to the work. Now, if you read Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, and you say, I want to do that. I want my life to contribute to the good of the city, then a fundamental way you do that is through your work. Whether there's a paycheck attached or not, right? Whether it's homemaking or grandparenting, whether it's serving on boards, this is a fundamental, this is the majority of your waking hours, of your waking life. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 11. Let's read it and hear it one more time. Proverbs 11, verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our vocations and occupations as woven into your work in the world this week. For mothers at home who care for children and for those who whose labor forms our common life in the city, for those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce, for those whose creative gifts nourish us all, for those whose calling takes them into the academy, for those who long for employment that satisfies their souls and serves you, for each one of us, God, we pray, we ask for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is our service to your kingdom. Help us, God, to repent where we've not worked as priests. Lead us to be holy, to be winsomely evangelistic, to be excellent. Help us to see, God, that our work matters to you as, even as much as our worship on this day matters to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.